Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Addicted to Crime. I'm releasing this episode to the Patreons only for their March bonus episode, and it is ad-free. So sit back, relax, put your headphones on, or turn up the volume in your car, whatever you gotta do. Get mentally ready for this horrible, twisty, curvy tale of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Since this is a Patreon episode, I'm not going to bore you with any business or talk about anything other than this case, so let's dive right into talking about Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh was born February 4th, 1902 in Detroit, Michigan to parents Evangeline Lodge Lindbergh and father Charles August Lindbergh. He was an immigrant from Sweden, his father was. Now, Charles Lindbergh spent most of his years growing up actually in Little Falls, Minnesota on a family farm. His parents separated when he was only seven years old. He attended high school in this area of Little Falls and he graduated in 1918. After high school later in 1920, he went to Wisconsin where he started the College of Engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But he soon realized that this, that this wasn't the direction he was interested in. He didn't want to go that direction. And instead, he left Wisconsin and he traveled to Lincoln, Nebraska to start flight training. According to the Charles Lindbergh biography on The Famous People, in February 1922, Charles attended the Nebraska Aircraft Corporation's flying school. And a few months later in April, he got to go on the Lincoln Standard tour about biplane as a passenger. And from then on, he was hooked. He had to be in the air. In April 1922, he was given his first flying lesson, and, like I said, he was hooked. However, he later left Nebraska, and he did some traveling. He went to Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming. He also traveled to Montana with some friends, a guy named E.G. Baugh and later H.L. Lynch, and he also went parachuting with these guys and went wing walking. He worked as an airplane mechanic at an airport, and he later took his first solo flight in May 1923. After that, he decided to join the U.S. Army, and he worked as a pilot in the Army Air Service Reserves. Later on, as he left the Army, he instead decided to work for the Missouri National Guard as a military pilot. He was later responsible for piloting U.S. mail across the United States. Charles was soon thrust to a historical legend status when he flew in a monoplane called the Spirit of St. Louis. He flew from New York to Paris nonstop. He was met by over 100,000 people cheering him on and congratulating him, and the entire trip took 33 hours and 30 minutes. And according to his biography, it was 3,600 miles long. Wow, and just think, he didn't have a podcast or anything cool to listen to. Goodness. (laughs) After this, Charles wrote a book and went on many, many scheduled tours on behalf of the United States all around the world. And at one point during one of his travels to Germany, he said that when he visited the German Air Force, that he was just blown away by the size and the power that they had. He also remarked that if the U.S. were ever to go to war with Europe, that they should avoid that at all cost, because he didn't think that we could beat Germany because of their Air Force. And of course, this provided him with some very negative feedback, and it was one of the first times in in his career that he had this negative feedback. But he later changed his opinion after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. 
He became heavily involved in World War II. He worked with Henry Ford on a bomber, and he also worked as a test pilot and an advisor. After World War II was finally over, Charles Lindbergh became the chief of staff for the United States Air Force. He became Time Magazine's Man of the Year in January 1928, and he earned many medals for his brave fighting, including the Medal of Honor. And I counted on his biography. He had at least 10 other medals, so this guy was super accomplished. I know this intro into him is kind of long, but I really wanted to provide the insight to how big of a figure he was at this time and still is today. When you Google Charles Lindbergh, you see famed pilot, aviator. He He's accomplished. You He was nicknamed the Lucky Lindy and the Lone Eagle. He was huge. Everyone knew about him. Everyone was in awe of him. He was very wealthy and very, very famous all around the world, not just in the United States. On one of his trips... He met a woman in Mexico whom he would later go on to marry. This woman, Anne Morrow, was an adventurous young woman who had the desire, quote, to marry a hero, end quote, at age 18. She was born in New Jersey to a wealthy family and was the daughter of the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. She caught Charles's eye and the two fell hard for each other. They married in 1929. Charles wanted to teach her how to fly, and so the two would spend many nights flying together. A typical date night between the two of them was just flying in their plane all over the country, which, sigh, that just (laughs) sounds amazing, and oh my goodness, to be that rich. (laughs) Through Charles's teaching, Anne became the first woman ever to earn a glider pilot's license. After their wedding, the hype and all the attention from the world around them, it was just getting to be too much for them. So they moved to Hopewell, New Jersey to sort of step back, kind of step away from the spotlight and begin their family together. The couple still flew together, though, and Anne was Charles's navigator, co-pilot and radio operator. And actually, Charles Lindbergh broke a transcontinental speed record and Anne Morrow was with him in the plane and she was seven months pregnant at the time. So these two did everything together. Shortly after moving the family to New Jersey, Anne gave birth to the couple's first child, a son, Charles Augustus Jr., of course named after his father. The couple doted on him, and he was given every single luxury he was never wanting. The family would go on in the years to come to have more children together after Charles would disappear, and the children they would have is John Land, Anne, Scott, and Reeve, so they would go on to have five more children. Baby Charles grew up in the huge home, and he was spoiled constantly by his parents and the nanny and other servants at the home. He was a beautiful child with curly blonde hair, a sweet smile, dimples in his chin and cheeks. He had chunky toddler legs, and he was toddling around. One of the only pictures I could actually find of him as a baby, and he's sitting uh, is up when he's sitting in a rocking chair, and he just looks so cute and chubby and content, and I think it was taken at his first birthday party. And I'll be posting that photo on our Instagram and Facebook also. However, there was the rumor that the baby was sickly and had some sort of disability or some sort of defect. And I'm not sure if this is true or not, or if it's just a rumor. And I really don't feel comfortable speculating on it since literally I heard it on one place, in one place. And so we'll just leave it at that. That was a rumor that was going around. I'm not sure if anything substantiates that at all, but that is just a rumor. Now, Charles Lindbergh Sr., the dad, he had a big personality. Like we said earlier, he had a huge repertoire. He was used to being in the spotlight. He was used to being the center of attention. He was always in the media, and so he wanted to be perfect and have the picture-perfect family, and he wanted to be the perfect family man all around. 
He was deathly afraid of scandal or anyone in the media smearing him. And at times to his family and staff, he could come off as being kind of cruel. And he was an extreme prankster. One example of a prank he uh, pulled on his uh, family and the staff is Charles hid his son, baby Charles, for like a couple hours and he hid the child in a closet and as the home was searching for him you know it was like this big deal and later he would be like oh here's Charles ha oh, silly Charles was hiding in the closet like big ha oh. and it was just those kind of pranks where it's not funny you know so he would play horrible pranks on them and he actually played this specific prank only three weeks before his son would end up going missing and he reportedly never played another prank like that ever after his son went missing. March 1st, 1932. From the outside, it seemed like a regular average day to some, but to others, it was the start of a nightmare. Charles Lindbergh left instructions for his wife and housekeeper to put the baby down to sleep for the night in his crib at 8 p.m. and then not to go into the baby's room until 10 p.m. The baby slept on the second floor, and Anne and Charles were both in the house as well as different housekeepers. So the housekeepers do what Charles say. They lay the baby down at 8, and at 10, the housekeeper goes in to check on the baby, and Charles is not there. Baby Charles is missing. She frantically calls out, what's going on? Where is he? She's looking all in the crib, under the crib, in the closets, just looking everywhere. Charles and Anna come running in. And Charles hysterically shouts to his wife, Anne, they've stolen our baby. Charles, Anne, and the rest of the house go downstairs and they look in all the rooms. Charles comes back up into the baby's room and he discovers a ransom note on the windowsill. He picks the note up and kind of looks out the window and notices that there's a rickety old ladder leaned up against the side of the house leading into baby Charles's window up to his room, which... Oh, that's the worst nightmare ever as a parent. Honestly, this entire story just sends shivers down my spine to think of someone going through the window of that baby's room in the pitch blackness. Oh, it's just horrible. It's every parent's worst nightmare for sure. The ransom note was very interesting. I'll include a photo of it on our social media, but it said, and uh, just a heads up, I'm going to read it. I'm going to try to read it. There are a ton of errors and it's hard to read. I will include a photo. But I just want you to hear, uh, to the best of my ability, what the ransom note says. Quote, Dear Sir, have five zero dot zero 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 dollar signs ready, 25,000 in 20 bills, 15,000 in $10 bills, and 10,000 in five bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notify the police the child is in gut care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes, end quote. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack from that. Whenever he or whoever this person is that wrote the ransom note wrote about the money, they said like 50.000 dollar sign. And then they said like two five zero 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 dollar sign. So it was, you know, like grammatically incorrect and there were a lot of spelling errors and there's really no sentence structure. And when they're talking about that signature on the letter, at the end of the note, there's a big black circle and some smaller holes around it. 
And it's really hard to explain, but I want you to picture like a Venn diagram, you know, the circle, circle, and then the circle in the middle. And that's kind of what it looked like. So it, it, it's odd. It seems though, when I read it, that there were mistakes almost too perfect. Like the mistakes almost seemed to be made purposefully in the letter to kind of make it seem like this person didn't, you know, wasn't aware. Maybe he English was a second language type of a thing. It just kind of made me feel like that. But that's just my opinion. The letter was very rushed, though. Like it kind of looked like the person who wrote the letter was in a rush and it, everything was very messy, like all the errors. That's just what was observed. So obviously the police are called and the Hopewell Borough Police, as well as the New Jersey State Police, extensively searched the home and they tried to gather what evidence they could. It was hard though. I mean, it's a home. It's well lived in. Charles and the housekeeper obviously obviously moved a lot of stuff when they were searching for the baby. So everything had ended up being compromised. Later on, when investigators were looking over the ransom note, they couldn't find any fingerprints left on the note which led them to believe that maybe the kidnapper was wearing gloves at the time that the kidnapper wrote it. They also examined the letter outside, and they said outside on the letter, there was no usable fingerprints there either. One interesting fact that I read is not only did they not find the fingerprints there, but, and according to this article, quote, no adult fingerprints were found in the baby's room, including in areas witnesses admitted to touching, such as the window, but the baby's fingerprints were found, end quote. So that's really weird. Nothing really can explain that away to me, except if someone were to wipe up fingerprints after the fact, but why would anyone do that? Unfortunately, not where there not only was there traffic from those that lived in the home on the crime scene, but there was also such a huge profile case that people would come and go in the house or by the house by the baby's window. People were just coming to the house, flocking to the house, actually, to, to just see what was going on, you know, what was the hype. And so if there was any evidence at all that could have been saved, it was lost. It was getting trampled on. It, it, there was no way to salvage anything. Even if they couldn't have done anything about the evidence that they found, like, right, it's the 1930s, what can you do? They could have at least saved it and kept it for future scientific discoveries down the line, but they couldn't because everything was compromised. The investigators set up shop, to say, in the Lindbergh home, and that would be where they kept their base for a few days. They set up a command center where they could go through evidence, be close to the family, as well as handle any ransom demands if they came in and that sort of stuff. There were offers of help from all around the world. Remember, Charles and Anne are very well known. They're celebrities at this point, and everyone came together to offer help. The president of America at the time, Herbert Hoover, was contacted to see if he could help. And at the time, kidnapping was only a state issue, not a federal one, and there wasn't really a plan in place for federal agents to assist in a kidnapping. But after meeting with President Hoover and explaining the details of the case, Attorney General William Mitchell convinced the president to have the Department of Justice ready and at the New Jersey State Police's proposal. So everyone was ready to help. A reward was offered from the New Jersey State Police of $25,000 for the safe return of the baby, and the Lindberghs put up an additional $50,000, making the total today in 2020, or excuse me, today in 2021, what year am I in, at $1,338,551. That's a lot of money. So it was $75,000 then, but then the $1,338,000 now, whew, that's a lot of money in today's time. 
And that was according to an article I read that calculates inflation. So a huge sum of money. Three words in place. The police are in place. All they need now is to wait and hear from the kidnappers. But before that could happen, apparently, the kidnappers thought that they needed a middleman with whom they could contact and then who would then contact the family. So a man named John Condren was completely separate from the family and he heard about the kidnapping and he felt compelled to help. He offered up $10,000 of his own funds to add to the reward for the child. And he said that he, he would give the person this reward if the kidnapper surrendered the child to a Catholic priest. Shortly after making this announcement, John received a letter supposedly from the kidnappers themselves. This letter stated that John was to act as the middleman between the kidnappers and the Lindbergh family. And Charles Lindbergh, he inspected the letter that was sent to John, and he decided that the letter did appear genuine and that they could trust that it actually was from the kidnappers. Around this time, the Lindbergh family got their first ransom demand on March 6th. The letter was actually postmarked March 4th, and this is the first letter that arrived in the mail, but the second letter overall. Remember the one on the windowsill and then this first one arriving in the mail. This ransom letter told the family that they were raising the ransom to $70,000. A third ransom letter came shortly after with instructions for John Condren. The instructions were to meet the kidnappers, to give them money, and to discuss the whereabouts of the baby. It was very specific with the details of how big of a box that the money was going to be put in, where they were going to meet, and everything. So John Condren followed their instructions to a T. He even placed an ad in the paper saying, quote, money is ready, Jafsi, J-A-F-S-I-E. The groups met up in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, where John Condren met up with the man, and he said that the man stayed kind of in the shadows. He couldn't really get a good look at his face, but he thought that his voice sounded foreign, according to an article that I read. When John asked who they were and where the baby was, the man told John that they were Scandinavian sailors and in a group of two women and three men, and that the baby was safe with other members of the group on a boat, but that the baby would not be returned without the ransom in full. John was, of course, suspicious of this entire thing, and when he asked for some proof to see the baby and to know he was okay, the kidnapper allegedly said, quote, Would I burn if the package were dead? End quote. Which, how does that make you feel? Because my hands are shaking right now. <laughs> to me, that's just a major foreshadowing. Like, yikes. It's not understood why he said this, but if he wanted to put John at ease, he failed because immediately John asked if the baby was alive. The kidnapper was like, yes, yes, he's alive. I said he's alive. So did he make this statement because of some guilt? That's kind of what it seems like to me. Or did he do this to kind of torture John and the family? Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? It's just weird. So John and the kidnapper parted ways. And on March 16th, a package comes in the mail and it's the toddler's sleeping outfit and I when they when I read sleeping outfit I thought maybe it's like pajamas or perhaps a onesie Charles Lindbergh he identified the pajamas as belonging to his son and so John placed another ad in the home news the ad said quote money is ready no cops no secret service I come alone like last time end quote on April 1st John received another letter saying that it was time for the switch and time for him to turn over the money. 
Now, they did this really kind of smartly. The money was placed in a very unique box, and it was done so distinctly and so uniquely that someone would recognize the box if they saw it again. They also actually were very smart with the money as well. They used mostly gold certificates in the ransom, and it was at that time that gold certificates were kind of going out of production and currency was being used more. And so they knew that people would have to take the gold certificates to the bank to kind of get them exchanged for currency. And so it would be easy to spot these large amounts of gold currency popping up as it was taken to the bank. And the bills that they used, they, they had the serial numbers written down so that they could be tracked that way, which is really smart for this, you know, the 1930s. Obviously, it, it's something that we could do now. But remember, this is almost 100 years ago. So it was, it was really smart for them to do that. So on April 2nd, John met with the kidnappers. This was it. This was going to be the switch. He was going to give them the money and they were going to tell him where baby Charles was. So John met with one of the kidnappers and the kidnappers took the money from him. John said that, I'm sorry, we were only able to raise 50000 but we'll give you the rest of the money. The kidnappers told him that Charles was being left with two women that weren't connected to the kidnapping and then he left. What? What? <laughs> I thought the baby was supposed to be brought back, but he was not. And everybody is heartbroken, annoyed, angry, back at square one. They don't know what to do or where to go from here. On May 12th, two men named Orville Wilson and William Allen stopped on their way with some deliveries to relieve themselves alongside the road. They stopped in Hopewell Township, and this was about five miles, a little less actually, away from the Lindbergh home. These two men stopped alongside the road, and they went to some trees to do their business. And while they were by the trees, they looked down, and to their horror, they saw the body of a young child. The body was badly decomposed, as well as damaged from the elements and from wild animals. Later on at the morgue, Betty Gow, who was one of the nurses to the Lindberghs, identified the body as belonging to baby Charles. She said it was him because of his overlapping right toes, as well as the baby was wearing a shirt that she had made for him. So there was no doubt in her mind that this was baby Charles. The baby was thought to have been killed the same night that he disappeared from his home. And it's just so weird because his body was only five miles away from his bedroom, an area that the family was used to, and the family had walked down that same area before on many occasions, an area that you would have thought would have been extensively searched. But of course, you can't search everywhere like that, I know, because you can have to miss something. Later in June, the investigation is still hot, and it was thought that perhaps it was an inside job. Investigators interviewed a woman named Violet Sharp. She worked for the Lindberghs as a household servant, and she had been interviewed before, and she had given contradictory statements, so they tried to follow it up with another interview. Sadly, the stress of it all was just too much for her, or she suffered from guilt and she couldn't explain. We don't, we'll never know. But she completed suicide on June 10th before investigators could have the chance to interview her again. And it was thought at the time that maybe the investigators used tactics that were too harsh or, or intimidating, so they did receive some backlash from the media. Later on, her whereabouts were confirmed by an alibi, and so she wasn't the person responsible for the baby's death. After Violet's suicide, the police turned their attention back to John Condren. It was odd for them. How this good Samaritan routine seemed to put him at the center of the investigation. He completely put himself in the middle of everything, and maybe it was out of the kindness of his heart, but maybe he had a motive and a reason behind it. The media also had a distrust for him 
And in the public's eye, he was guilty and he had something to do with it. He couldn't just be doing this out of the kindness of his heart. John would often go to the police station and ask about the case or he would want updates. However, nothing went anywhere with John and he just seemed to be sort of a dead end. With all of their leads growing cold, investigators focus on the ransom reward money. It's got to pop up soon. And it did. Very soon, the gold certificates would have to be coming up because there was a deadline. The gold certificates had to be taken to the bank by May 1st, 1933 to still be used. So they would be exchanged for current currency. So they knew that that day they had to be ready. The kidnapper had to bring the money if they wanted to salvage any of the ransom at all to spend. Finally, with only a few days to spare before the deadline, a man deposited $2,980 and he wanted them changed over to a different currency. It was later found out that these certificates came from the ransom money. Boom. This man's identity was later, later discovered to be J.J. Faulkner. When police backtracked into the address that he left at the bank, they didn't find anyone by the name of Faulkner living there. But, and this is interesting, there was an older woman who had lived in that home by that name, Faulkner, 20 years ago. So, this has got to mean either this person's a relative of that woman, or maybe someone knew that that woman lived there. He stole her name so that they could fly under the radar. The woman who lived there earlier by that name, that woman named Jane Faulkner, she denied having anything to do with the kidnapping, said she didn't know why anyone would use her name, and so on and so forth. But it is really odd. After these events, the case went cold. No new evidence was turning up. No one was coming forward. And so the investigation just kind of had a stalemate. Basically, the case had a brick wall. Finally, two years after that, one of the ransom bills popped up again. It was used by a man named Bruno Richard Hoffman. He was a German immigrant. He was a very poor man, and he had a very low social status. He worked as a carpenter. When officers searched his home and when they looked in the garage, they found $13,760 worth of the marked bills from the ransom in his garage. Now, Hotman's excuse was that the money belonged to his late business partner, who had only died just a little bit ago, and that he was spending his partner's money because his partner had owed him. And when he was arrested, they booked him on extortion as well as murder. Throughout everything, Hotman denied his involvement with the kidnapping. Nevertheless, his trial was set to begin January 1935. And I have to admit that when I was researching this case, I kind of had some just weird feelings about this guy. I really didn't feel like he was the one. But in the trial, some things, some really compelling evidence popped up that pointed to him. One, for instance, is the fact that John Conran, remember the guy who was the in-between for the family and the kidnappers? He identified Cotman as the one he exchanged money with. So that was huge for the state, and it was a very key piece of evidence. Uh, It's just weird because he said, like, he couldn't get a good look at the guy's face before, but I guess he got a good enough look that he could be sure that it was Hotman. So he identified him in court, and that was huge. Another piece of evidence was that old rickety ladder that was on the side of the house leading into the baby's bedroom. They tested some of the lumber on that ladder, and it matched with the lumber in Hotman's home in his basement. And that lumber matched. So, obviously, the lumber from his basement matched the lumber on the ladder that was leaned up against the house. That's pretty compelling. 
Also, handwriting experts testified that the other ransom notes sent in the mail matched his handwriting. So that's huge. Hotman took the stand on his behalf and said that, yes, he is guilty of lying to the police, but he was not guilty of the murder of baby Charles. Nevertheless, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder, and according to the Charles Lindbergh House and Museum article, Hotman was sentenced to death by electrocution. April 3, 1936, Bruno Richard Hotman was put to death in a New Jersey state prison. He went to death still claiming his innocence, and he said he was being framed. And after that, you know, everything sort of settled down. There was a person who was declared guilty. The media died down. People lost interest, and life just kind of moved on after that. Afterwards, the United States Congress passed a law called the Federal Kidnapping Act, and it was also called the Lindbergh Law. This law made kidnapping a federal offense, and it also allowed for authorities to pursue potential kidnappers across state lines. Crazy to think that this law needed to be put in place and that it wasn't already there, but at least it's there now. Now, let's talk crazy theories because it's 2021 and people are still talking about this case. They're talking about whether or not Hotman was innocent and if there could have been more than one person involved. So here are some of the most interesting theories that I've read that I feel like are worth noting. I think one of the crazy theories, that one of the most craziest of that I read was that an Ohio man actually thought that he was the Lindbergh baby. And I first read this, or I first listened to this theory from the Weird Darkness podcast in its episode Conspiracy Conflict. So go ahead and check that out if you want more in, um, information. That's where I first heard this theory and since that first hurry I've seen it pop up on other sites as well. So the story was a family secret that a great aunt had passed down. Charles Augustus Lindbergh Sr. went missing from his crib 1932 but is that what really happened? This family rumor stated that a boy named Bobby Dolphin or Robert Dolphin wasn't actually Bobby Dolphin at all but was actually Charles Lindbergh Jr. So I guess it, it went something like this. There was a plan to kidnap the Lindbergh baby by Hotman's late business partner. Remember the guy who had the ransom money and who who Hotman said it belonged to, who the ransom money belonged to? Yeah, that guy. So apparently Hotman's late business partner as well as the Barberton gang were conniving together to kidnap the baby. They took the baby from the house and they dug up an already deceased child from a cemetery and they placed that child's remains in the woods with some of baby Charles's clothes, some of his belongings, so that when the body was discovered, it would thought to be Charles. When what really happened was baby Charles Lindbergh Jr. was given to Dory, the family, Dory Dolphin. And her child, we don't know what happened, her, her child either went missing or died or what. It's possible that her child died and she wanted another child, or it's possible she killed her child. Who knows? Like, who knows? It's just a crazy theory. I, I mean, I can see how it could be possible and that they then could have framed Hopman. They put the money in his house in the basement. But if that's true, how do you explain the ladder matching the wood in the basement? I mean, unless they took wood from his basement to make the ladder? It's possible. How do you explain the handwriting expert? matching the handwriting from the ransom note to Hotman's writing. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Hotman was in on it, but there was more people. 
In this theory, too, it is possible that Charles Lindbergh Sr. could have been involved as well, or it's possible in this theory that he didn't know anything about it. Maybe Charles Lindbergh was responsible for giving his child to these people. Maybe he was tired. Who knows? It's just... It's just a crazy theory, and, and it all, all could be resolved if Bobby Dolphin it, it would just take a DNA test. So his mother actually passed away, and he said that if he exhumed her body, it would be easy, right? Just take a familial DNA test and find out if he is her daughter or not, or if he is the missing Charles Lindbergh baby. But he, as of 2021, he hasn't done that yet. So we won't know. <laughs> but what a crazy twist, right? Like, how insane would it be if we find out so, like, 90 years later that Charles Lindbergh baby is alive and was switched at a young age and never knew it? Like, how crazy would that be? I don't think that's what happened personally. That's just a theory that I read. But it is very compelling, but we'll never know unless Bobby Dolphin gets that DNA test. He does look a lot like the Lindbergh baby, though. Like, when investigators in the media appeared on his front door, they were just astonished at how much he looked like the baby growing up as a teenager. So the thought, like I said, Dory Dolphin exchanged her sickly child for the Lindbergh baby, and everything matched. Lips, mouth, nose, cheek shape, chin, the dimple in the chin, and even the right toe kind of going over the other toe, the overlapping toe, just like the Lindbergh baby had. So according to this story too, Dory Dolphin took her son on a trip saying that she was going to visit a sick uncle in, in New Jersey. When she returned, she supposedly had the money in her hand, a large sum of money, and was with a young male child that according to some people didn't look like her son. This baby was larger, had curly hair, whereas her son had straight hair, also, all of the bills that the mother had was money that she did not have before. So she made money on her trip. Allegedly, Dory Dolphin knew the maid in the home, that maid that committed suicide in the Lindbergh household, and that's how she got the children switched, allegedly. Now, an investigation was done after Bobby came forward with the information, and the fingerprints did not match. So what they did is, they looked at Charles Lindbergh's toys in his bedroom. They matched those with Bobby Dolphin's fingerprints, and it was not a match. However, there is always the chance that maybe Charles's fingerprints on the toys weren't Charles's, or maybe it was a maid's who was moving the toys when they were cleaning up, or maybe it was the parents, or maybe even another child. We didn't see who made the original print, so we can't know who they came from. But that's the story. That's the crazy story like I said, we'll never know unless they get that DNA test, but it's it's just insane. And there honestly there's more to that story too, so go listen to the Weird Darkness podcast if you want to hear more about it, but it's just so crazy and convoluted that by the end of it I was like, okay, what am I going to share on my episode? What am I not? This is just so much information. Oh, it's hurting my brain. <laughs> but that's the gist of it. So, and the next crazy theory that I read is that maybe Lindbergh was tied in with the Nazi party. And as I was digging deeper, that theory isn't all that out there. Remember before World War II, he was trying to keep America out of the war? Keep that little thought in mind as you hear other things he did during that time. Not only did he he write an article for the Reader's Digest urging America to stay out of the war, but he actually started speaking in huge groups that were anti-Semitic in nature. 
and it really did on the outside at least, seemed to not align with the Nazi parties. He was asked to go to Germany many times to check out their air force, and he even flew some aircraft, from, uh, some German aircraft. He was even awarded a medal during a dinner in Germany, and this was awarded to him by Hermann Göring, and the medal was given on behalf of Adolf Hitler, and this was in October 1938. And a few weeks after this dinner, a few weeks after he gets this medal by Adolf Hitler, yada yada, the Germans kind of released their own anti-Jew policies and their hatred for Jews and the thought that they wanted one superior race, you know, all that horrible Nazi stuff. Everyone around Charles told him, you know, man, you should get rid of that medal. It doesn't look good. And Charles refused to get rid of it. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor and when Germany declared war on the United States, then Lindbergh, of course, did, like I said earlier, decide to go fight for the United States. But many thought that it was just to save face. So, the theory is that Lindbergh became involved in the superior race, eugenics operations that the German Nazis had. Experimenting on individuals, breeding people together to create the perfect, air quotes, ideal, perfect race, the perfect human, whatever. Many people thought that Lindbergh was fully into this idea. He completely adopted it. He just went to fight against the Germans as kind of a cover. And when he gave birth to a son who, like I said in that rumor, was thought to have some defects and some handicaps, he just took this as he couldn't have his son anymore because he wasn't perfect or whatever. So it really didn't take much uh, of thought to think that he would view his son as a hindrance and maybe he didn't want him. I do think that Charles Lindbergh has some kind of involvement because in this entire story, he has a bunch of red flags. Do I think he was Nazi? I don't think so. But I'm going to kind of read you a, a gist of all of Charles Lindbergh's red flags <laughs> and I'll let you be the judge of whether he has something to hide or not in my opinion he does because there's a lot of evidence saying that he might <laughs> but I'm gonna leave that up to you I'm just gonna read you some of the red flags and I left out these red flags from the beginning of the story because I didn't really want to bias how you heard the story. So I decided to leave out most of the red flags. I didn't want you to be like, oh, he's guilty right away. You know what I mean? So a first red flag, the day of baby Charles's disappearance, Charles Lindbergh Sr. was actually scheduled to speak at a very important event. But instead of canceling or letting the people at the event know that he couldn't make it, he just didn't show up to give his speech at all. So of course that's weird. Uh, the day his kid goes missing, he skips out on a speech, something he's never done before something very unlike him, red flag. Another thing that happened, Charles took over the investigation and he actually went crazy at one point and threatened to shoot officers who stood in his way. Red flag number two. Red flag number three. When the FBI from America was going to send the two agents over to help in the search, Charles Lindbergh sent the officers back and said no to their help. Red flag. Number, what are we on? Four. Red flag number three. I don't know. I lost track. And instead of accepting the FBI's offer to help, he instead accepted the help of psychics and other mystics to help find his son. Okay, another one. Charles and his family fled to Europe after the investigation decided to be reopened. Sure, that looks suspicious, but it also could be they just want to get out of the public spotlight. Like, I get both. Another red flag. Charles insisted on cremating the baby instead of giving the baby a proper Christian burial that his wife wanted thus getting rid of evidence that could later be discovered pointing to a killer. Big 
big, 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 big deal. It's just, there's just so many things. Plus, he goes into the child's room and just discovers this ransom note. That's sketchy. I don't know. Like I said, I feel like he has some kind of involvement. I don't know what. And most likely, we'll never know. It's just, it's just really, just really sad. This whole thing is sad. Charles also had a lot of affairs after his son's, um, his son's death. It was thought that he just, obviously, this huge traumatic experience happened, and him and Anna actually grew apart. When they moved, he started multiple affairs with multiple different women and actually became a serial adulterer. He had seven children, not including his children with Anne, with other three other women. So he he just really kind of went crazy after the death of his son and after they moved. And so that kind of points, in my opinion, to some character. But I've never lost a child. Lord willing, I will never, ever, 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 ever lose a child. And so I can't really put myself in his shoes. I know he's dealing with a lot of stress and stuff, but at the same time, it just doesn't look good when you're looking on the outside in. It just doesn't. A quote from his wife, Anne, actually suggested, too, that she wasn't happy with her marriage to her husband. One of Anne's diary entries read, quote, I am sick of being this handmaiden to the Lord, end quote. So obviously that's kind of showing that Charles is really controlling and just that Anne was unhappy in her relationship. And so that does set off a red flag. If there's an unhappy relationship and then the firstborn child goes missing, obviously you should look at the parents as possible suspects. But because of their fame, it seemed like police just didn't look at them at all. It seemed like they jumped to it couldn't be them. It had to be either someone in the household or it had to be someone outside the household. So whether or not they were really looked at by police is better left unsaid. Who knows? It doesn't seem like they were. But it is just a very compelling case. It's a very twisty case. Did Charles Lindbergh Sr. have anything to do with his son's death? Is this some huge conspiracy, some huge cover-up? He was rich. He could afford it. Or is this family just hurting by some crazy random kidnapping turned ransom, turned murder? And did the right person die for this crime? What do you think? I want to hear what you think. That is the end of this episode. It was a wild ride. I try to keep it as organized as I could. It's a confusing case. And so it felt like it was going all over, all over the place. But hopefully you stayed up in tune with it. And hopefully you enjoyed it. This is the very first Patreon episode that I've done. I'm going to try to do one a month. That's the goal please bear with me. <laughs> uh, this is not my full-time job, but I love it so much. It's 100% a hobby, so bear with me. I'm going to try to keep it at one episode a month, but be kind. Some days I'm not good to it, <laughs> but that's going to be my goal. You guys are amazing. I am so thankful for the Patreons. I am so thankful for you guys supporting the podcast. You are truly my biggest fans, and I thank you guys so much for your support. I hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.